Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue Dr. John's series, Rediscovering the Holy Spirit, with a message entitled, The Fullness of the Holy Spirit. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Today, as we carry on in our discussion of the Holy Spirit, I want to move from the experience of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament to that amazing day of Pentecost. I've tried to portray the Holy Spirit as he is portrayed in the Bible. He's God. And as God, he is fully equal to the Father and the Son. As God, he is eternal and all-knowing and so forth, bearing all the attributes of God. And I also made plain that each member of the Trinity fulfills a unique role. I intimated this before, and I will elaborate on this more and more as we go on. But let me say that it was the Father who planned our salvation from eternity past. That is his unique role. It was the Son who implemented the plan of the Father through his atoning death on the cross and through his resurrection. What then did the Holy Spirit do? The answer is he administers the plan. You see, without the Holy Spirit, no one would come to salvation. He draws people to Christ and regenerates the heart of people so that they might believe. By nature, we reject God and his Son, but the Holy Spirit changes the heart so that we delight in him. Well, that in a nutshell is it, but of course, there is so much more to learn and know about the Holy Spirit. Let's define Pentecost. Pentecost is a Jewish feast. In ancient Israel, there were three feasts which were called pilgrimage feasts. Deuteronomy 16, verse 16 explains it. It says, Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Now, the first of the feasts happened in the month of Aviv. It was the first month of the Jewish New Year, coinciding with March and April. Yes, this is the spring, and this is when we celebrate Easter. The Feast of Unleavened Bread came right after Passover, and as we know, this is when Christ laid down his life. During this time, all Israel journeyed to Jerusalem to celebrate, so there could not have been a better time for Jesus to lay down his life for our sins, for he did it in the sight of all Israel. The second of these pilgrimage feasts, when everyone came back again to Jerusalem in the book of Exodus, was called the Feast of the Harvest, and in Deuteronomy, it was called the Feast of Weeks. It's called the Feast of Harvest because it coincided with the beginning of the wheat harvest. It was called the Feast of Weeks because you counted off seven weeks after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You would have seven sevens, as it were, then add a day, making it exactly 50 days after Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Greek word for this feast was Pentecost. It simply means 50. Now, during this time, you were required to come back to Jerusalem and offer up the first fruits of your harvest. And during this time, just like Passover, the streets of Jerusalem were again crowded with thousands of pilgrims, all ready to celebrate the goodness of God in bringing in the wheat harvest. It was like a grand Thanksgiving Day festival in which you didn't have Black Friday or Mad Shopping Day before it. Rather, you came to the Lord and presented the offering of what you had as a sign of thankfulness to the God who cared for you. And it was here, again in the sight of all Israel, just as Jesus was crucified and risen in the sight of all Israel, so also the Holy Spirit was given in the most public way imaginable. 
when everyone was there. You'll remember that Luke says that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Let me read Acts 2, 9 and 10. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Perga and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. That's quite a list. That's because Pentecost was a pilgrimage feast when Jews from a multitude of nations would journey to Jerusalem so we can see that the work of our salvation was not done in secret. God went public. And when the book of Acts records this event, our eyes might glaze over reading this list because we recognize very few nations on that list. That's because nations change and things are not what they once were. And so rather than use the ancient names, let me put it in terms we would understand today. They came together from Italy, Greece, Albania, Bosnia, Serbia, Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, Libya, Egypt, Algeria, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. The languages represented there were considerable. The gathering must have been somewhat like a mini-UN. And for believers, it had now been 50 days since Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. According to the book of Acts, the first 40 days were taken up in the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. But now that he had ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God for the last 10 days, the disciples awaited the coming of the Spirit. Now, it's not as if they were doing nothing, for one. They knew that they had to have 12 apostles, and they got that from a prophecy in Psalm 69, 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8, which says, let another take his place. So they replaced the vacated place of Judas with a man named Matthias, kind of like an alternate juror. And Matthias, like the remaining 11, had also seen all that Jesus had done and taught. And then having accomplished that, they waited. But the Father knew exactly when he would send the Holy Spirit. It would be on that day when Jews from the known world were again in Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost. Now, before we go further, let's ask the most basic of all questions. Where was the Holy Spirit before the day of Pentecost? Was he simply waiting for his assignment, which would follow the death of Jesus? Now, if you were listening yesterday, you recognized that the Holy Spirit was everywhere at work. The work of the Holy Spirit was involved in creation, in guiding, protecting, empowering men and women, and even in some way in convicting men and women of sin and even deciding the lifespan of every single human being. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit had raised up prophets who oversaw the writing of sacred scripture. He had raised up kings who ruled God's people, and he was drawing his elect to the Father. Now, I'm afraid that yesterday we only began to touch on that subject, but we noticed how the Holy Spirit was guiding the godly and even defeating the ungodly. A thorough study of the Old Testament helps us see that it was the Holy Spirit who directed the life of God's people so that they became pleasing to God and through whom they did mighty exploits for God. Let's put this in a way that can briefly summarize the experience of God's people on the day of Pentecost. See, the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament, in creation, in redemption, in empowering God's people, and even in indwelling God's people in some fashion. Well, if that was so, what can we make of what happened on the day of Pentecost? Clearly something new happened, but what was that new thing? And by the way, may I tell you why this is so important to us? 
Imagine that someone placed millions of dollars into your bank account and you have never checked out your account. So you never became aware of that which is now yours, nor have you made use of what is available to you. Now, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For in one spirit, he says, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. Let me draw your attention to two important issues from this verse. First, notice that the wording, speaking of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in the Greek has the same wording as what we read in Acts 1.5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So then the Apostle Paul is teaching that the very same baptism of the Spirit that Jesus promised in Acts 1.5 is what all Christians have received. When we speak of the baptism of the Holy Spirit later this week, I will make much of this. This passage should put to rest the idea that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is only reserved for the more spiritual among us. No, it was given to all. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Second, please also notice that Paul adds another feature. We were all made to drink of the Holy Spirit. That is, he has become the source of our spiritual life. And since this is so, how sad it is for some Christians not to be aware of or making use of what they have. But let me step back for a moment. In order to understand how our inheritance of the Holy Spirit is different from the Old Testament saints, let's for a moment consider what Jesus promised to his followers. Let's concentrate just on what is recorded in the book of John. In John 3, 6, Jesus promised a new birth, that is, when we come to faith in him, we would be born of the Spirit. That is to say, the very essence of the life that Jesus gives to all who believe in him is the life of the Holy Spirit. And if you were here yesterday, you heard me say that this is of a superior kind than that which was understood in the Old Testament. In other words, there is a quality of our interaction with the Spirit that is simply superior in every way to theirs. And when we come back, we will make this thought plain. Just a reminder that our first 2017 issue of Truth in Life magazine is available this month, so you'll want to subscribe now to ensure you receive your very own copy of our bi-monthly ministry magazine. The February issue is focused on relationships. How do we honor God in our relationships? And for 2017, we'll have two new featured articles, one based on your questions arising from our new Truth in Life Today program, and another by Pastor Ray Duick, sharing a pastoral response to the specific theme of the current magazine. These articles, along with regular features from Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, In Doubt's Isaac Dagno, our Bible reading plan, and so much more. So don't miss out. Request while quantities last. You can receive your free subscription of Truth in Life by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. We had said that our experience with the Holy Spirit is so much richer than that of the Old Testament believers. First, we were born of the Spirit. 
Second, our experience is one in which rivers of living water flow from us. And third, Jesus also promised an understanding of the things of God that Old Testament believers never had. John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, if you're a careful Bible student, you might say, uh, well, wait a minute. Jesus said this uh, to the 12 who are going to write the New Testament and leave us with the New Testament. I mean, here actually is the promise that the things these men wrote about Jesus would be absolutely accurate. The Holy Spirit would so oversee their writings that everything they remembered about Jesus and wrote about him would be entirely accurate and trustworthy. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit would also show these men the implication of all that Jesus said. Finally, the Holy Spirit would, in these men's minds, see the teaching of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It is this that is promised in John 14, 26. And, well, that's true. But there's another truth attached to that one. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the same Holy Spirit helps us in the reading of the words that he inspired in the text. In verse 13, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, fourth, Jesus also promised that the Holy Spirit would help us understand Jesus himself. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, Jesus says, he will bear witness about me. In other words, the Holy Spirit will help us recognize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He will help us see the advantage of losing our life so that we might find Christ. He will help us to see that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he is the one who has preeminence over all things. He will open our eyes so that we will find in Jesus alone a treasure chest of holy joy. Because the Holy Spirit, God's people will from now on make much of Jesus. For the Holy Spirit has a task to make Christ known, especially to us. No Old Testament saint knew this. This is our joy alone. So very quickly, let me summarize this. We've noticed that the Holy Spirit was very active before the coming of Christ, but Jesus helped us to see that after he ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit would be sent with an abundance that no Old Testament saint had known before. See, Jesus promised something new, a new life in the Spirit, a new indwelling of the Spirit, a new understanding of Scripture given by the Spirit, and a revelation of Jesus from the Spirit. Now, I think we're ready for the day of Pentecost. I'm reading Acts 2, verses 1 to 4. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I want you to notice the progression. The first thing that happens, happens quite privately. The disciples were together, and I'm assuming the word all in verse 1 refers to all 120 believers along with the disciples. There's a sound, and it sounds like a rushing wind. In both the Greek and Hebrew languages, the word spirit can also be translated as breath and wind. And so the Holy Spirit, who is a spirit, cannot be seen, for he has no bodily form, but he arrives with a sound that tells the believers that what was anticipated has now come. The next event is the divided tongues of fire appearing and resting on each one. 
Here the Holy Spirit is giving every indication that the promise Jesus has made is for all of them, each one individually. The gift of himself will be personally felt by all of them as fire rests on each one. The third event is that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That is to say, the Holy Spirit took full possession of them. We might even say they were possessed by the Holy Spirit. I say it this way because when we think of possession, we often think of demon possession. A demon-possessed individual has their will suspended by one more powerful, and in that case, one who is ultimately evil. But here it is different. This filling of the Holy Spirit is not against their will, but their will now rejoices in the powerful third person of the Trinity who fills their being entirely, not with evil, but with holiness. And the fourth event is very significant, but in a different way than than you might expect. The Bible simply says they began to speak in other tongues. In some ways, that's an unfortunate translation, although it's a correct translation. What do I mean? For many of us, the idea of tongues is somehow mysterious. We often think of tongues as a kind of ecstatic utterance, a specialized speech given only by the Holy Spirit, and then we argue about its meaning and whether believers should be doing it today. But in older English, as in the Greek, the word tongue and the term language often bore the same meaning. So while I have a tongue in my head, Uh, The tongue is used to speak, and hence, in Old English, I personally might have said, I speak two tongues. I speak both the English and the German tongue. That's true for me. But in modern English, I would not speak that way. I would replace the word tongue with the word language. So in reality, that's precisely what Luke is conveying to us. In that room, when all were filled with the Holy Spirit, and when the new era of the Holy Spirit began, all those in the room began to speak in different languages. I would think that a modern translation ought to use the word languages instead of tongues. Well, which languages did they speak? Well, they spoke the languages of the pilgrims who came to celebrate the Feast of Weeks all the way from Italy, to which I am sure some spoke Latin, all the way to Arabia, in which I assume some spoke the language of Arabic, and every language in between. So when they broke out of the room they were meeting in and spilled into the streets, they began to speak these languages loudly, and all the people listening heard them in the language they used in their home country. And what were they saying? Well, they were praising God, or as Luke calls it, telling the mighty works of God. Now, Luke doesn't fill in the details, but he does tell us that they were speaking of the mighty works of God done in Jesus, that's what I'm assuming, including his miracles, power over demons, death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. They were proclaiming what he had done in languages they could understand. And that causes amazement. How can it be that these men are Galileans? Galilee was a backwater place, and people from there never got out. So they would have had no opportunity to learn these languages. Yet here they were, praising God for his mighty deeds in all of these languages that represented the people who were there. It didn't sound like gobbledygook. It sounded like languages these people spoke when they went home. And with that, the entire city was amazed. And everyone gets into the discussion, what do all these things mean? And just then, as if not enough unique things had already happened. Something now happens that has never happened in the history of God's plan of redemption. 
Oh, yes, the Old Testament prophets prophesied to people, telling them to repent and turn to God. But to the most part, their efforts were not received and people were condemned. But here's something unique happens. Peter gets up to preach Jesus in such a powerful way that some 3,000 people are converted and become followers of Jesus on the spot. Never had an Old Testament prophet seen conversion on a mass scale. And with this, we have the greatest symbol of the new era of the Holy Spirit. A call can now be given that will draw men and women to Christ. See, at Pentecost, a new age of the Spirit began with power to bring men and women to a saving knowledge of Christ. And as we go on through this study, we're going to see that this power of evangelism had never been experienced before. This is a part of the giving of the Holy Spirit. John, thanks so much for your message today. And it brings up an interesting topic and one that so many talk about within the church, but it's the whole role of tongues and tongues being a real touch point between churches and denominations and individuals, or is it as much a touch point today? Yeah, I guess I'm old enough to have a memory, and so are you, Ben, but I do recall in my youth that this was a much greater issue than it seems to be today. I mean, I remember in my youth that this is the reason why churches divided. This is the reason why people left local churches, and it was a real hot spot, and I see it less so today. And, and I'm not always sure why that is. I mean, it might be that we resolved some of those issues. It might be that we're simply disinterested. I hope it doesn't mean that we're disinterested. I, I hope it means that we've resolved some of our understanding of how tongues actually operate in the Scripture. So does that cause us to be at issue about how different churches express the use of tongues? Yeah, I mean, obviously we know that some churches actually believe that the gift of tongues are a sign of the Holy Spirit, that you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit until you've spoken in tongues. And there are some that actually argue that tongues is a gift that has ceased in the first century. So in that sense, the divide is still very much there. But I'm hoping that we've come at least to the place where we're going to lean harder on the Scripture for the answer to those questions, which I'm going to try to resolve in in this study as we go on. And and obviously, we've got our own opinions here at Back to the Bible, and that might be in variance with opinions of others. But I'm hoping that we're going to base this thoroughly on what the Bible actually says about this issue. I mean, just to let the cat out of the bag just a little, I mean, my sense is that tongues is adoration and glorification of God. It's not a word from God to us. It's rather a a prayer word to God, and it's given as a gift to some and not to everyone. I think that's our perspective here at Back to the Bible. Thanks so much, John. We look forward to hearing more about that. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Your gifts mean so much. It allows the Bible teaching ministries of Back to the Bible Canada to be heard every day across the country. Bible teaching relevant to the needs of God's people and faithful to His Word. In fact, that's what you're telling us. Joan wrote, We love the way John digs into the Scripture, explaining the Bible, what it meant for the day, making it relevant for today, and how it applies to our daily walk with God. Encouraging words that speak into the ministry's mission. So whether you listen on radio, podcast, audio mail, online, mobile app, or CD, your support makes it possible. 
Perhaps today you'd consider responding to the importance of Bible teaching by offering a practical gift to support this month. Perhaps a single gift or become a partner to tell monthly partner. It's easy and secure. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.